testing, testing, one, two, one, two. Well, hello friends, family, well wishes, happy new year. This is, uh, what, the 10th of April? Probably not going to publish this anytime soon, but I was, uh, <laughs> I haven't recorded in, I think my last recording was in August, I think. That's just been a while, it's been a while. I've always said I wasn't one of those people that just recorded just just cause I don't really have anything to talk about, so I didn't record. But um, I do have some stuff to get off my mind today. Hello, future generations. Let's get to it. I've kind of, uh, I guess I would say, stayed away from politics recently. I haven't really said much about politics. Not much to say politically, I'd say, but. Have a war going on right now in Europe. <laughs> Talk about a flashback, huh? It's not quite the. Is it the Roaring Twenties? Well, the World War One happened in in the tens, I guess. But the twenties have come back. <laughs> the nineteenth to twentieth centuries come back with a bang. I have a war in Europe, again. Exciting times, scary times. And we have some prospects of nuclear war on the horizon. I don't think that's gonna happen, to be honest. I understand the fear about nuclear war, but I do think we have enough, not even sensible people, I don't think these politicians are quite sensible, it's just they don't want to die too, so there's no point. I don't think we're going to see war, but this podcast is not probably so much about the war as it is the role of the media in the war. You know, I find I fancy myself a bit of a media critic and... What's happening in the media right now, on social media especially, it's been going on for a few years anyway, but it's quite scary in terms of learning about war and the truth of of the war and what's going on about it. Of course, you know, as usual, you know the theme of my podcast. If there's some bad stuff happening somewhere in the world, the United States probably have their fingers on it. And <laughs> no surprise, it is the same in this case as well. The United States have their fingers all over this war. In fact... I would go as far as to say this war is not Russia versus Ukraine. This war is Russia versus the United States. And I don't know how familiar my listeners are with the history of the area of Ukraine and the tensions with Russia in the past. Some some say this started in 2014 when Russia, you know, the way the, way the mainstream media, <laughs> to use that derisive term now, the way they say it, Russia started this aggression in 2014 by seizing Crimea illegally. And, you know, we've been fighting Ukraine since then, culminating in their, you know, their overall invasion of Ukraine just to, you know, recreate the Soviet Union, as they say. Putin has that phrase of, of the great crime of, you know, the great, you know, tragedy of the 20th century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union, even though they never actually finished the quote. But I had this debate with my dad a few weeks ago and... <laughs> I could always roll my eyes at if you're a CNN watcher I wouldn't even say you're consuming news if there's something called you know how we have matter and antimatter if you have news something called anti-news that's what you're <laughs> that's what you're consuming you're better off not even listening like an average person on the street who's, who knows nothing about this conflict can probably you know if they had to just throw some ideas in the air about what's going on they could probably be more accurate than someone that listens to mainstream media, the BBC, the CNN, even Fox News in some regards on this war, depending on who you're listening to. 
and that's exactly what's, in my opinion, frightening about it. This is like, I guess not the first war, but this is like, you know, the biggest war we've had in the information age, where, you know, the wars we had in like World War One, you know, 2003, even the recent ones, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq. It wasn't so easy for people to get access to information without just listening to the news. Now, you know, the news is everywhere. It's on Twitter. Anyone can be a source of news, I suppose. You know, citizen journalists, average individuals just affected by it, saying their opinion. And that's exactly what's so frightening because what you've seen now in this war is is something that's very, very sinister, I would say, if you care about the truth or if you're just interested as a historian. The kind of censorship of the facts that's gone on in this conflict is truly terrifying. Like, as someone who, you guys know, I'm, I'm a lover of history, I, I really don't know where this is going. You know, we, ha- we, st- we had censorship, you know, it started a few years ago with, you know, getting rid of the uh, Katie Hopkins and Alex Jones and these people. And of course, that's where the cens- censorship works. When you get rid of the extreme elements, as you would say, everyone shares, you know, is causing harm. But I think I actually wrote a blog on this a few few years ago actually when I used to write my blog that the great attack a front on free speech nowadays is that I can offend someone with my speech therefore I shouldn't be allowed to say what I want to say I mean it's quite terrifying even you know the podcast I did probably episode six I think it was on free speech I absolutely don't think that someone should be able to say you know Someone should be able to be arrested for saying, you know, mean things to someone else. It doesn't matter what it is. Because in the context of real life, you could just walk away. You know, I don't really understand this. But, you know, on social media, they take this, this, uh, not analogy, I would say, this scenario to the extreme. Where not only would they, did they start banning people who just said what other people deem to be hurtful, which is an extremely subjective metric, to say the least. Now they ban people for political opinions. And what they're doing essentially is they're targeting people that are saying things that are counter to the narrative. That's terrifying. Even if you, you know, vehemently disagree with their views, in many cases facts, you know, let's be honest, about the war in Russia, or war in Ukraine, I'd say, that Russia is waging. To be able to get rid of them and basically hide that opinion from people, it's... It's something. It's terrifying, and I can't. I really, really can't believe that this is the point we're at. People are being, you know. I mean, essentially, if you go on social media now, it's basically impossible to find anything that's actually telling the truth about the war, unless you've been interested in politics like myself. You know, from beforehand, you literally have no clue what's happening. So once the war broke out, I don't exactly know what the rationale for this is. But social media companies started to either ban Russian official Russian accounts or Russian journalists or tagging them Russian affiliated media, which again, it's a phrase that came out of the 2016 presidential election, Russia linked, one of the most subjective phrases in the history of journalism. And they allowed to get away with this and tag people. They even tagged someone the other day that just worked at a company, uh, a TV channel called Russia Today. They don't even work there anymore. Now they're Russia linked somehow, Russia affiliated. What does that mean? And it's it's terrifying stuff. If I was to go on Twitter right now, I'd be hard-pressed to find any such tags on the BBC's media, you know, the BBC's reporting. 
even though the BBC is literally, and I say literally, you know, not ironically, literally funded by the British government. So the, the selectiveness of this tagging is extremely concerning for people that care about truth. But bigger than that, it's it's basically the hiding of the information from, from their own public. The social media companies are not seen as somehow their responsibility to basically shield us from stuff we didn't want us to hear. You know, Russia's perspective, given that they're one of the combatants in the war, it's critical. You know, even if you absolutely think, you know, you know in a court of law, for example, where you might even, there might be multiple eyewitnesses to someone committing a crime, they're still allowed to have their own witnesses. They're still allowed to have their own defence. We're still allowed to hear what they have to say. The police don't just say the case against you is so strong. You're not allowed to at least say your own side, whatever that side may be. Your side may be very, you know, you know, doesn't give us much more information than we already see. But in the interest of general truth, you still want to know what that side is. But somehow the social media companies have decided that even that we're not allowed to even hear. So if you have one side in a conflict, you know, how is what they're saying about this conflict that they're involved in, how is this not newsworthy reporting? And the, you know, the terrifying thing about that is naturally, of course, any kind of atrocity reported in the war is reported from the Ukrainian side saying Russia have committed X. And Russia isn't even allowed to say, hang on a minute, we have, you know, countervailing evidence that shows that this clearly didn't happen or we didn't do this thing. But <laughs> in, in some cases, the news literally rep- refused to cover, you know, the Russian denial. Or they'll cover the Russian denial to suggest that it's some kind of conspiracy theory without actually listening to the facts of the case. I read, uh, I think it was three days ago, Matt Letizia, uh former Premier League footballer was an ambassador for you know the club he used to pay for Southampton he stood down as an ambassador because again I'm, I'm going to quote what the I think this was the the Metro I think I was reading or the Evening Standard one of those before I get sued for libel I think it was the Metro because I read that in the morning and they said the 53 year old former England forward shared a conspiracy theory regarding what appeared to be intentional killings of civilians by Russian troops in Butcher and other towns. Now, for some background about that case, what we don't know about that, what that's about, Butcher is a town in Ukraine that Russia was occupying but decided to essentially step step back from, relinquish, however you want to say, as part of, you know, a kind of peace agreement with Ukraine, you know, in some negotiations, obviously you're going to offer some you know, some, some offerings, some olive branches. So, exactly, we're going to, you know, evacuate from the territories we are currently occupying, you know, as a kind of peace offering. Now, what's alleged in this town, again, if you see the media reporting on this, and the crazy thing is, so many people get their news from Twitter, but when I went on Twitter the morning this news was reported, it was literally reported just as fact that Russia's committed massacres in, that's literally the word Twitter used, massacres in Butcher aptly named I suppose and you know anyone reading this is obviously going to think well you know Twitter's not going to post something that's just like you know, demonstrably false but when people started to examine the evidence again when I say people I don't mean the actual journalists getting paid hundreds and tens of thousands I'm talking about 
you know, people that are getting paid a lot less on the margins who actually care about the truth. What he found was the claims of massacres by the Russian troops. I mean, who knows if they were massacres? Maybe those people were dead before and they were placed there, or maybe, you know, they were killed by some other people. There's some, you know, there's some different theories going on about that. But what we started to find was the claim of the Ukrainian troops that Russia killed people when they were pulling out of this place in revenge. I don't know, lashing out or something. It was completely debunked very, very quickly. Initially, what came out was video footage showing the town the day before this massacre was reported, where the Ukrainians started to reoccupy the town and they were just posting videos of themselves being really happy that the Russians left. And none of these videos showed any massacre, showed any bodies on the streets, showed any, you know, burning. So you can clearly prove that the Russians could not have done this because the day after they left, these bodies were not... It wasn't like these bodies were found somewhere. The bodies, they were placed on the streets. So clearly, if anyone was re-entering the town as a Ukrainian, it's, it's kind of hard to miss, you know, dead bodies on the streets with different things burned into them. And a lot of these dead bodies appear to have white armbands which is what the russian soldiers were wearing so you know the new theory very very strong evidence to suggest that some of them were actually just russian people russian soldiers or russian speaking people who were sympathetic to the russia's you know invasion as you like maybe some partisans or something but again even if this is not even true this is very very strong countervailing evidence that's even worth investigating the metro one of the you know most widely spread newspapers in the UK describe that as a conspiracy theory. I mean, the conspiracy theory is that Russia killed those people because anyone with half a brain, even if, again, if I use the court of law example, if you're, a, you know, a lawyer, a prosecutor and, you know, you, you appear to catch what's a serial killer, you know, what we know is that serial killers kill because some of them are devoid of emotion, you know, they don't have sympathy or empathy or whatever it is, but you still try to establish a motive. This is like the basics, the you know the the most basic type of investigating there is. Okay, the claim is Russia killed these people out of revenge for pulling out of the town. First of all, why would they agree to pull out of the town and kill people in revenge if they were pulling out as a peace offering? That makes no sense. Like, how does that make any sense? If you're offering to leave a place. How would you kill people when you're leaving? You know, you might as well stay there then, you know, and just refuse to leave. That makes no sense at all. Secondly, why would Russia decide to kill them only when they were leaving? Why couldn't they kill them when they've been occupying the town for the past few weeks? Why did they have to wait until the day before they were leaving? And of course, you have the other evidence of why was the bodies not there the day after the Russians left? Why was it there two days later? So, you know, it's very quickly something that, you know, again... If you're interested in the truth, like myself, and maybe some of you listening to this, these are the kind of questions where, or maybe you might not think of, but now I've brought it to your attention, you might start to wonder about. But there's no room. Try to find any even suggestion. In fact, it was only a few days later that some of the major news outlets start to add that, oh, they've been un- unable to substantiate the claim that these people were killed by the Russians. And in fact, a lot of them just say that as kind of a throwaway line to just to still pretend that they have any type of journalistic ethics but they just continue with the you know the narrative that the barbaric russians killed them just because which is again what they suggested you know in syria with the gas attacks you know this guy has been you know president assad they claimed has been fighting these rebels terrorists i might say i might add 
for years and all of a sudden he just decides while he's winning the war by the way and the war's about to end let me do the one thing that's going to bring more international condemnation so if you're vladimir putin you're losing the kind of pr battle about the war so the next thing you do is to murder civilians or order people to murder civilians when they leave in a town when you're trying to negotiate a peace or a peace settlement again i mean a five-year-old would come up with a better theory than this but this is what they put in the and people not only do they expect people to believe it people are very very willing and eager to believe it so i think that's kind of partly why i do this podcast because the level of deception is not only kind of infantile in my opinion what's more frightening is that people are very very ready to believe it so that must mean that the deception is working because if people are so easy to believe something that you know no critical thought about it whatsoever it shows the level of hatred it's almost like you're inclined to believe bad stuff about something you know someone or something anyway and i think a lot of this kind of started in terms of the mainstream hatred of russia after hillary clinton's loss when she blamed you know russian bots for her loss which again is still the prevailing narrative in the media in fact one of the things that happened a few years ago during the election cycle of um president eventually president biden was that a story was published in what actually was the oldest newspaper in the u.s which is the new york post they published a story about joe biden's son and twitter locked their their account citing threats of interference from russia so again i mean this is literally what society is this is what the free world is coming to and i'm sure if i was to post this somewhere where i had a bit of a following and people actually cared about what i said someone would probably contact my employer and accuse me of making you know putin apology apologies for war criminals and crimes to be clear the invasion of ukraine was illegal you have to understand it in the context of sadly what happens in a lot of politics which is these people really think life is a game and what i mean by that is when they talk about the you know the big national security you know um regional security issues and they're talking about dominating another country how to loot another country how to overthrow this government i don't think they see the world the same way ordinary people see the world as like a real tangible thing i think they view the world as a kind of game of thrones place where they can just you know play their 3d chess of geopolitics and if civilians have to die about it then tough because that's the only reason why both sides i would say no first of all the americans can continue to expand nato up to russia's border and then conversely you know the russians invading ukraine which i guess they will say they have their very serious security reasons for but i don't think they see the world the same way we do and it's kind of i think that's why it's probably hard to explain for the ordinary person you know when this happened a lot of people were like oh but you know what right does putin have to decide what happens in ukraine and the ukrainian policy and etc 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 and for better or for worse russia sees nato as an existential threat now again i always find this a bit childish because i genuinely think because both sides have nuclear weapons no one's actually going to attack the other one i think that's probably why china is not as fast maybe as russia is because the US has China encircled right now with allies and 
warships and things like that. But I guess China realizes, you know, what are you actually going to do? Invade China? Of course not. So maybe some people, including myself, I start to see this kind of military chess as a bit, it's a waste of money. Because what good does it do you if you have China encircled by warships that you have to spend millions and millions of dollars every year to keep, you know, in running in top conditions and feeding the people on it? But you can't actually do anything with it. Is China threatened by your warships? What are you going to do? Invade them? What you're going to do is do some sanctions. They're going to sanction you back and everyone's going to keep fighting until everyone resolves it, which is what's been happening. The warships are just purely for It's a spectacle. It's for show. Well, I guess Russia, you know, <laughs> they don't think the same way. I think it's easy for me to think that way when I'm just a 24-year-old recording a podcast on my phone in my house. When you're the leader of, you know, tens of millions of people you probably see the world a bit differently given the history so war broke out and now essentially the u.s is trying to basically f- <laughs> the funny thing about this war even is that the war could have ended a long time ago but the u.s refuses to let it end which you know i, I always say on this podcast anything that's bad happened in the world if you look closely you'll find the u.s impact on it ukraine and Russia would have reached a peace settlement a long time ago. But two things you have to bear in mind. Firstly, Ukraine is essentially governed by extreme far-right neo-Nazis is what they are, really. And in fact, another incredible thing that's happened is that a few years ago, the BBC, the New York Times, Washington Post, they all reported on the problem Ukraine has with far-right neo-Nazis. But now that there's a war going on and they have, to st- they have to be seen to be defending our side, which is the Ukrainian neo-Nazi side, by the way. Funny how we always happen to be on some kind of extremist side. It could be terrorists in, you know, in Afghanistan. It could be ISIS in Syria. And now it's uh, neo-Nazis in Ukraine. I don't know. Funny that. But now they're essentially sometimes scrubbing those articles of what they said or just saying, oh, well, that doesn't apply anymore somehow. This is completely different. Again, just an application of, of their truth-telling duty, which you would think the media has, but I guess that's probably a bit <laughs> grandstanding on my part to expect the media to actually just be in the business of telling the truth. So what we have is we're supporting neo-Nazis in Ukraine to fight Russia. And, well, they're losing pretty badly, to be honest. But we're stopping a settlement because, essentially... The way the US sees the world is that by tying Russia down in some kind of proxy war. Again, this is how these people see the world. I genuinely kid you not. This is how they view the world, like a game. So they're trying to fight Russia by tying them down in Ukraine. What does tying them down in Ukraine mean? That means Ukraine will continue to fight, you know, small guerrilla attacks against Russian troops occupying them in which maybe 10 to 15 of them will die, you know, maybe each few hours. And this is glorious for the united states apparently this is you know amazing stuff for them this is they're winning the war against russia you know as someone put it brilliantly in the media the other day united states is willing to fight russia to the last ukrainian not the last american the last ukrainian because they don't give a shit about what happens to ukraine they just want russia to suffer for it again this is the kind of psychopathic extremists i would say mind you have running you know, the biggest country in the world. And, you know, our country as well, the UK. Our Prime Minister's cheerleading. Putin must go. You know, we have to send more arms, more weapons. God. God, these people do not care about the Ukrainians. 
and in recent times we've seen them just willing to basically publish demonstrably false you know news what they call news statements anything that just makes russia look negative and in fact there was actually a very troubling report in the new york times the other day in which essentially the government well some cia leaks essentially said oh a lot of the stuff we tell the media about the russia doing are lies but we just tell them because we don't want russia to do it anyway so we're very pleased that we've been able to do that and you know the new york times they didn't find any shame in this that someone just admitted to them you know or maybe a few people admitted to them from the cia and the places they've been getting their news and you know their scoops and their you know first-hand reports from you know sources within the intelligence community that they've been manipulating you this whole time and you still write that you know i guess with no irony or you know doesn't you don't even take a look at yourself in the mirror you write that you know with a straight face like oh yeah they're telling me that they've been deceiving me this whole time because they want to win some information war against russia but oh yeah i'm just going to write that too i mean this is what passes for journalism nowadays as trump said we're not sending our best and brightest and um it's it's really terrifying. Well, it's terrifying. It's a bit dramatic, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. Not much is gonna happen to me, but I don't I don't know where it's going. I might you know restart my uh, my political Twitter again just to post int- well I find interesting about the war because it's it's kind of hard to watch in real time and it's funny because in ten or fifteen years I'm sure when they write the narrative of fake news and disinformation. These same people that have been that are lying to us, that continue to lie to us, they will probably be the ones writing the books on it, with no self reflection, with no essentially what they've become is cheerleaders, you know, they're mascots, and you know if they're gonna come out and say you know what, yeah we're a private company but we just agree with and want to advance the goals of the United States or the Western and NATO governments, and I guess. That will put a kind of a disclaimer on their reporting. But they don't, they don't admit that. They genuinely talk like they're providing some kind of truth and, you know, fighting for the common man to, you know, democracy dies in darkness, they say. Sigh. That's what I can do, sigh.